Faced with an uncertain future, many business owners and technology professionals don't have the time needed to invest in their business technology strategies. And as a result, they're afraid of their technology getting outdated and putting their company and customers information at risk. The digital future is already here, but with all different choices in the marketplace, it's difficult to know which one will be the best fit for you and your strategic vision. Imagine having the peace of mind that your business is backed by the right technology investments that are tailored for your specific need. Hi, I'm Brian Nichols, and I've helped countless business owners and technology professionals just like you, helping you make informed decisions about what technologies are best to invest in for your business. Voice, bandwidth, cybersecurity, business continuity, juggling all the aspects of business technology is messy. Let me help. Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash help and sign up for a free one-on-one -on -one consultation with yours truly to dig deep into where you see your company heading and how we can align your business technology towards those goals. Again, that's briannicholsshow.com forward slash help to get your simplified business technology started today. Victor Antonio, welcome to the program. Selling is all about, really, it's, we're not selling a product, you're not selling a service, you're not selling value, you're not selling whatever you think you're selling, a solution. You're selling change. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. As a sales and marketing executive in the greater telecommunications cybersecurity industry, Brian works with C-level executives to help them future-proof their company's infrastructure for an uncertain future. And in each episode, Brian takes that experience and applies it to the liberty movement. This is why we talk about being the trusted advisor. You should be able to help use that expert guidance and all the opinions that I'm sure that you have and help lead them towards not just a decision, but the right decision. Instead of focusing on simply winning arguments or being right, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and their application in the world of politics, showing you how to ask better questions, tell better stories, and ultimately change people's minds. And now, your host, Brian Nichols. Show. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for joining the show. And uh, you, I was uh, given your information by our dear leader over at the We Are Libertarians big channel, mm -hmm. uh, Chris Spangle. And uh, you are uh, leading a great organization that really is helping libertarians answer the question, okay, well, what would a libertarian society look like? And that is the Startup Society's Foundation. So let's do this. I want to start off introducing who you are to my audience, and then we'll go into who the Startup Society is and what your Startup Society's Foundation that is, who you guys are, and uh, what your main goal is. Yeah, totally. So uh, the, for one clarifying point, uh, the Startup Science Foundation is not just made up of libertarians, though a lot of us start as libertarians and certainly provides a way for libertarians to move forward. But the, the onus of this is just this idea that instead of simply arguing about you know, the political ideas that you have, it's much more effective, much more ethical and much more satisfying that you actually implement them in your everyday life. And that may sound in everyday life and in, in, in the life in general. And that might sound overwhelming, but there's a couple of trends that are happening geopolitically and technologically and economically that are actually making it uh, abundantly clear, uh, more evidently available. The tools are more freely available. And uh, one, one element of this is a lot of our co-founders, we, we saw that there was all these experimental communities that were popping up and they were, they were out there, they were getting money, they were getting uh, uh, citizens what have you, but a lot of them, especially the more experimental ones, kept making the same mistakes. And also they weren't connected with each other, so they weren't sharing resources or, or, or human capital. And because of that, they were failing. So we realized, well, there needs to be sort of a, a, a common network, sort of an institution that can help promote these projects to the world, uh, uh, provide them best practices so they don't fail, and also provide a common network so that they can uh, work together. 
Um, and so that's what we created. And we sort of scaled from there with academic articles, uh, blogs, podcasts, uh, podcasts, and trade shows. And we've really scaled to the point where we've created digital tools like, a, like an interactive dashboard in uh, a comprehensive database of startup societies all around the world. Uh, a 600 page how-to manual for how to make these things and the only peer-reviewed journal in the space that discusses how to make uh, special jurisdictions and talking about special jurisdictions to policymakers and to uh, academia at large. So it's always really difficult, right? Because a lot of libertarians do get stuck. And, and you mentioned, obviously, it's not specifically for libertarians. But I mean, obviously, I'm going to say I don't think it's uh, un unfair to maybe guess that a lot of the folks um, part yeah. of the organization are libertarian. And that that's fine. Um, so I guess one of the things that we always get stuck on is trying to balance this principled, like, you know, just kind of pie in the sky idea of what Libertopia will look like versus saying, okay, here we are in 2020. This is what we have as our reality. Here's yeah. what it looks like, you know, truth, you know, situation on the ground. This is what we're experiencing day to day. And this is what we need to do in order to, you know, just, just to start to, to live a, a life of Liberty and, and, you know, go about living it in our own personal lives. And I, I personally, that's kind of been my route more recently is, is getting away from electoral politics so much, which is yeah. ironic, obviously, because my show the past, like I think four or five episodes have been explicitly about Libertarian party, presidential stuff. Um, right. but, but, uh, but discussing more specifically about how do we, you know, take our, our values of Liberty and, and the principles that we believe in that we were confident are correct and apply them into our real lives, but actually make a real substantive change. And, and I dare say that that sounds like what you guys have started to do over at the, uh, the startup societies foundation. I, I, am I correct in that kind of assumption? Yeah. I mean, uh, like I said, a lot of us started including myself from, a. From that sort of direction, I was a big fan of agorism when I first started out. Um, and while I'm not a huge fan strategically of some of the darker elements of agorism, um, such as an emphasis on black markets, I do believe in the idea of creating counter economics or, or parallel systems. Um, and I think a lot of what blockchain technology does is a lot of that. And it, at first, it was purely philosophical. It was the idea of, oh, I believe tax voting is an equivalent. Uh, evil to uh, abetting the system, but it sort of became a, a, a practical thing. Um, if you, if it, I'm sure a lot of your viewers are familiar with with public choice economics, and if they are, they know that the the deck is stacked against them. There's so much momentum in these institutions, and they have very strong incentives to maintain it. Versus the people at large have very dispersed incentives to actually change anything with it. And because of that, the momentum for these larger systems is just to continue growing or maintaining themselves. So from a practical standpoint, voting things in isn't going to make something happen. There's not going to be a big philosophical moment, I'm afraid, that's going to change everyone's mind, which would, would be required. What's going to need to happen is that you create these little examples and because that's how people really care about things. The, the, a lot of what happened in, in the early Americas, it wasn't everyone suddenly became really well-versed in John Locke. It's what, oh, well, it looks like what people are doing in Connecticut is doing pretty good. We should try that out in Virginia. And then people in Connecticut are like, wow, Virginia is doing what we're doing and better. We should probably have some better laws too. And by voting with your feet and, and prosperity and, and the happiness of, of their people, obviously there's there are some serious, serious problems with the colonies that should not be overlooked. But that general principle of the idea of having competitive governance is, is a lot more practical and grounded in trying to cause a philosophical revolution. And on top of it, just on a personal level, I think a lot of people that are engaged in politics, including myself, 
they are very dissatisfied with their lives. I mean, I think there's there's a little bit of a sick pleasure that comes out of, you know, having this Machiavellian sort of love for politics, especially when you're really deep into the trenches. But ultimately, you, you feel like Sisyphus versus at the end of the day, when you're working a project that is creating a parallel system, even if it's starting small, like something like a like a like a, like a food drives or a, a sort of like a like a impromptu library or something that scales larger, like a blockchain company that's creating uh, private like like blockchain insurance or a, a small a like full scale startup society that has the same weight of impact while at the same time not going against principles and that same Machiavellian grossness that comes with traditional politics. I mean, let's be real, right? And this is something that you know I I actually just did an episode for uh, the Big Channel. It's uh, part of Chris Spangle's new Path of Libertarianism uh, segment on the We Are Libertarians Network. And um, one of the questions, and this episode is yet to be aired, so I'll, I'm giving a sneak peek, folks. Um, one of the questions that Chris asked me was about libertarian identity. And you know, during our conversation, you know, I think it's it's safe to say that many folks, just not not just in the libertarian movement, but as you mentioned, in politics in general, tend to get more so identified by their politics more than they do like their interests, their hobbies, their families, yeah. their jobs. And it, I think you hit the nail on the head when you started discussing their, you know, when people get involved in politics, it is because they are dissatisfied with their life, and it's so easy. To I mean, honestly, it, it is really easy to get involved in politics because all you have to do is get politically active. And that could be, you know, just support your campaign on social media or, or what have you versus actually doing something in your personal life to make substantive changes. I mean, I, I don't think it's it's too far out there to say that by and large, many Americans just look for the, the easy answer. They look for that magic pill. They look for the politician who's going to come in and save it all, whether it's somebody like a Trump on the right or a Bernie Sanders on the left. And they're looking to to feel that they're that they have some control in their lives, despite their ability not to have control in their actual lives. So they think, well, it's the best way we can actually you know go about this. And it's it's sad, but I I think that you know I'm seeing this not just with Republicans and Democrats, but also libertarians, con, uh, conservatives, progressives, is that they they become so enamored in who they are as as you know their political selves that that then becomes who they are, and they forget about the things that you have to do in your your personal life to actually get success and and actually put our policies and our, our principles into action. Yeah, there, there's a lot of sacrifice of your your own identity for this for this ideology and at least the type of sickness that a lot of people, including myself, had to deal with. And also there's this, but there's this belief, this overriding belief that, well, we have to do it because something needs to change. But that really ignores that these, these options are actually practical because we get, we get a lot of, uh, of, uh, of accusations that our ideas are fairly utopian. And there's certainly people that are very utopian, you know, the, the Liberlanders of the world or the, or, or the people that are trying to make a city on the hill. But these things are really, really common now. There's 5,400 special economic zones in the world. And for viewers who don't know, special economic zones are areas within a designated host nation that have different policies uh, than uh, the rest of the country. And this could be something as simple as you know tariffs and taxes, but could be as extreme as something related to a regulatory policy. And there's even some cases, uh, and these are the most extreme circumstances, where they are uh, they have their own legal system. They have their own court system, such in the case of uh, the Dubai International Financial Center and some projects that are happening uh, in Central America. And a lot of them have some of these better projects are largely autonomous. And about 60% of these projects are private. 
Um, so they, there is an opening for entrepreneurs in that space. And that's precisely why we wrote the book, Founding Startup Societies, a step-by-step guide, because if we want to break it down and say that these things already exist, they're already making an impact. And not only that, they're becoming, the, the barrier to entry is becoming progressively lower. And if we could provide you these tools and you yourself as some motivated individual, even with very little capital, you can take the steps to actually make it happen, even if it starts as simple as a website and a crowdfunding campaign and social media campaign. You can scale the point where you get uh, initial financing for a study and finding a location and a local partner. And from that, getting additional financing from, from, uh, um, from larger development companies and negotiating with governments and starting small as small as a co-working space and moving all the way to the point of a full-scale city. And that's the point. We, we want to show that there's this large-term vision and large-term impact, but it's based in grounded reality and a step-by-step process that people can do. Well, and this is the thing that I think, again, going back to just the liberty movement in general, because this is this obviously yeah. is a liberty-oriented audience, is that right. we do get so stuck in this, you know, what's the best way to advance liberty? And, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, uh, to you know, dig up more libertarian drama, but, like, right now there's there's Jason <laughs> It's Sam- a favorite libertarian pastime. It, it, yeah, if you're not, you're not really a, a real libertarian unless you have other libertarians arguing and then you comment on, on said libertarians arguing. In this case, it's, yeah. it's, you know, people that I respect greatly being that of Dave Smith from Part of the Problem and Jason Stapleton from Wealth, Power, and mm-hmm. Influence both very well noted, you know, liberty activists and libertarian activists. And Jason mm-hmm. is much more in the, you know, let's go out of our way to make ourselves better as individuals and, mm-hmm. you know, earn your wealth, power, and influence, and then change the system that way. Whereas Dave yeah. is much more in the make more libertarians out there. And I'm kind of sitting here on the sideline, like do both. Like why not both? Cause when you look at what you're, you're talking about here, and as you were discussing, starting out small is these, these businesses that people can start, which really, they're, like you mentioned, their, their barrier to entry is very low. And if anything, the entry that is, is set in place, that barrier into the, uh, the marketplace is usually a barrier set by government. So I think it has to be twofold. You have to have a, a product, a good, a service or, or something that you are, are, you know, promoting, selling, whatever it may be that is, is definitely something that the, the consumer wants, number one. But number two is that you, I think you do have to have the, the liberty, activists who go out of their way to help promote changing policy. But I think it's when both of those tides meet, right? So when you have the liberty mm-hmm. activists who are, are making societal pressure to, to get these, these you know, laws, regulations, whatever changed, but then you have the liberty oriented business person who, you know, their, their, their service, their good, whatever it is that they have is so valuable to their community that the, the public is looking at the, the barriers to entry for that company to grow and expand their services and say, well, damn it, damn it all. Like, you know, we, we want this service. You know, we, we show that by our support with our dollars and by our patronage, but we can't get more because of this barrier. And that's where I think, again, the activists and the entrepreneur or just, you know, the person who's trying to live the principles in their, their own lives, that's when those two worlds meet. And I think, you know, one without the other is going to end up not being successful regardless because you will have, you know, the, the other side of the aisle who they'll have their own activists and their own, you know, entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurs who are going to be trying to, to put those barriers back in place and stifle competition. So I think we have to work hand in hand instead of being so quick to, you know, say, well, my side's better versus your side. Like I'm saying you guys are both right. And let's at least come to the table and have that open conversation to see, you know, what you're bringing to the table that does have merit. And maybe, you know, we can find our disagreements and, and work through those, but instead um, instead of, of just pointing fingers and saying my side, my approach is better and your approach is worse, like actually look at the merit of each side of the argument. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, 100% agree. And with a lot of these strategies, um, politics is intertwined with the business. Like, for instance, me, um, I don't have a business background. I, I studied poli-sci, philosophy. I was in political campaigns. I was going to go to pre-law. And then I, I threw myself into business that was premised off political ideals. And throughout it, I have to employ knowledge of politics, economics, geopolitics all the time. With uh, these types of startup society projects, you are negotiating with the government for policies. So you're going to have to know politics. And that often includes working. In fact, it, it must. If you're creating a special zone framework, you have to negotiate, you have to lobby, you have to work with governments, and you have to push for some sort of policy change. So that's absolutely the case. And yeah, I mean, even if, I mean, if people want to go out and do like activism proper, you know, for electoral politics, feel free to do it. I don't think that there should even really be an argument. That's kind of the point. It's, it's people should be demonstrating what they're doing and just have the results speak for themselves. I think a lot of time argument is just entertainment <laughs> and it is it's it's masturbatory and i and i know that because of i i participated in plenty of internet debates myself and i don't participate in them anymore because if i know that it's purely for entertainment but it really it's it's empty and it just makes you feel worse and it does not get anything done and if you if you're doing for entertainment then say so be open about it if you're doing it to have a conflict with someone say so but if, if the point of your ideals is to make something happen, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't tear down someone else's strategy unless your goal is to overcome them in, in a political battle or, or, or what have you. And that's fine. Just be open to the idea that you're using it for other ends rather than this hyper-idealistic way that you're conceiving yourself, which I think is a little bit uh, unself-aware. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the meme that made my heart just soar because it was so accurate was that meme that came up at the end of last year with uh, Captain America from the end of Endgame. And it's like, don't you want to get involved in this political debate? And it's like, mm, no, I don't think I will. And that, that literally is me. Like, that's me now. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, what I used to do back, I mean, a, a few, what, four years ago with uh, Rand Paul running for um, running for president. And, you know, I was all on board with Rand Paul's campaign. And I mean, I was one of the first ones on, on the front lines, you know, going against the, the Trump the Trump folk. And, and you know, I was firmly, firmly never Trump. And I, I, I invested far too much time and energy into yeah. trying to stop what was the inevitable the inevitability of Trump. And if I had instead focused my time and efforts towards, you know, bettering myself or, or bettering, um, you know, bettering my, my arguments and message to, to not necessarily be combative and argumentative, uh, argumentative, but actually try and change people's minds. And, and, you know, that's kind of what the, the, the reason this show exists is because I didn't want it to, to be stuck in these confines of, you know, a back and forth on Facebook because it, it really is not productive. And, and I mean, people aren't really having their minds changed looking at a Facebook post. They, they don't. Um, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Let's, let's kind of uh, go back to why you're actually here on the show today. <laughs> um, so let's let's first and foremost kind of discuss the, the startup um, societies. And I want to first get kind of a little bit, Joe, for, you know, what is it? that you would look to as maybe a crown jewel example of a true startup society that you guys have either supported or at least um, you guys have been documenting to uh, to show the values of what we're doing here? Well, so it depends on what your type of scale is. Uh, there's a lot of very interesting projects that are happening hush-hush at the moment, but there's obviously the historical examples. There's Dubai, which uh, popped up. Well, I mean, obviously there was a city 
in the, in, in the Emirate of Dubai for a while, but the city really skyrocketed in the 1990s because they created a series of uh, special zones. So within uh, two decades or so, it became a world-class city. Uh, there's also Shenzhen, which was a series of fishing villages uh, in the 1980s, and they instituted one of the first special economic zones, well, the first effective one. The first one in China, one of the first four. And they went from a population of 30,000 uh, to a population of 18 million within 30 so years. And now they have the same GDP as Ireland, Portugal, or Vietnam. Um, and that's just absolutely astounding. Many commentators can say pretty authoritatively that special economic zones are the reason why China has risen. They were the way, way that they did liberalize, the way that they developed their economy, the way that they create this export-focused uh, uh, region. So they've been absolutely huge. But there's also these, these, uh, these newer zones that are focusing less on exports and manufacturing that are, that are smaller scale and, and still new, but are very interesting. Um, one of them is a Cayman Island Special Economic Zone, which uh, has liberalized the visas. Like if you're working there, it's very easy to get a visa there. Um, and there is no tax. There is no capital gains. There is no income tax. There is no corporate tax, nothing. And they, their regulatory system is absolutely, completely streamlined. And so it's doing really great things there. There's also Zona America in Uruguay, which focuses on, uh, of, uh, on internet companies, information technology versus uh, manufacturing goods. So there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there. And also what is known as the creme de la creme, oh, potentially, is uh, the Honduran Zedes uh, that are happening. Well, they've been happening for a while. Uh, it, there is a... There was a constitutional change in the Honduran government that would allow a private company to create a proposal to what they call CAMP, a Committee for Best Practices, that would allow them to create their own legal system. So a private company would be able to basically write a constitution, uh, their own legal system, their own taxation system, their own property registration system, their own legal code, everything. Military, uh, not military, uh, police. The only thing that they did not have power to that traditional governments do is military and sovereignty. Everything else is in the purview of, of the ZA and they have to pay a 12% tax, um, but that's it. They, they have full reign and uh, it's been slow going for a while, but there's definitely some indications that they're gonna be making a pretty interesting announcement pretty soon. And I have a feeling once they break this 10 minute mile, you're gonna see a lot more of these things because you're gonna have a lot of governments that are wanna ha have these, these sort of things, that they're gonna to wanna to see uh, the spillover effects that really improve their people's lives. But the interesting thing is at a certain point, even though a lot of these things are allowed by the government, it's gonna be, the balance of power is gonna shift a little bit. These things are gonna have more power in the future than a lot of nation states have now because you're seeing a diminishing power in traditional nation states but you're also seeing rising authority within cities and special jurisdictions and special zones and you're going to be seeing a lot more decentralized future that resembles a lot of past governance system that was not so reliant on the peace of westphalia which guaranteed all authority in rule within nation states now that's not to say that they will disappear or go away or there will be conflict, the goal is that there will be a multiplicity, there'll be pluralism within governance rather than having these set ties that are causing bureaucracy, momentum in, in unnecessary directions and also unnecessary conflict. 
because if you have this pluralism, you have much more ways to re release valves, so to speak, for people's concerns. So where do you think that, you know, where you are now versus where you see yourselves, where do you think this kind of mentality of startup societies will, will end up, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? And, and do you feel that the, the prospects of, you know, people accepting this, because, and the reason I ask this question, Joe, is, is because when you look at the rise of someone like a Bernie Sanders, right, and, you know, we're recording here February 2020, and you know, though he's not the nominee, I just got this inkling that Bernie Sanders is going to be the, you know, the, the guy who sweeps this entire Democratic nomination process. And now the Democrats are going to be forced to choose, you know, a, a true top-down, you know, democratic socialist centralized planning approach or, and I'm not trying to make the distinction to Trump being by any stretch a free market capitalist, but at least someone who is friendly with the ideas of capitalism, though he is by no stretch of the imagination a capitalist and he is, I would dare say, a, a, a crony capitalist, um, but at the very least, he kind of talks the, the good talk, if you will. Um, so I guess with that being said, it seems like a lot of people are starting to buy this democratic socialism bit and they look at themselves as being disenfranchised, as not being uh, in a position of, you know, uh, not, not just ability, but also, um, you know, in their own lives, they have no real chance to make something of themselves because of the, the the societal pressure, the whatever it may be that they'll look to blame that's in place. So do you think that that's going to be a sentiment that we're going to have to compete with? Or do you think that by and large of seeing this in action is going to help encourage more people to understand the value of what's going on? I'm a big fan of the judo approach. The idea that you use the momentum of something, especially something as big as a historical event, to the advantage of a goal. So instead of fighting against this, this polarization, you use it to the advantages of your goal. There's going to be increasing polarization in, uh, in the United States, and it may not, not, it's probably not going to get tremendously better. You're going to get a bunch of people who are going to be at each other's throats, unfortunately. Um, and you're going to get a lot of people that are very sick of it. And you're going to find people that are going to be trying to exit out either by creating these things or leaving. Like, for instance, um, I'm, a, I'm sort of like an involuntary digital nomad. I've been popping around different jurisdictions. I currently live in Colombia. Um, and I'm very happy about that. I'm very glad that I do not have to hear uh, this talk about, you know, the primaries or Trump or Sanders unless I choose to, which I don't do as frequently as I used to. And um, I think that this polarization, you're also going to see increasing distrust. You know, for instance, you see a lot of Democrats that were trusting many of these three-letter agencies and these institutions and were calling uh, many people on the right. Uh, crazy for saying that, you know, no one could abuse these things. You're just being paranoid. Now they're increasingly thinking, wow, but if we get someone in power that we really dislike, maybe we shouldn't have this type of power at this type of level. So if you have that type of uh, distrusting of everything, you're going to have trust gotten down to its more natural level where, uh, are you familiar with Dunbar's number? I'm sorry, say that again. Are you familiar with Dunbar's number? Oh, Dunbar's number? I am not. Okay, so Dunbar's number is around 120. It's a, it's sort of the natural, uh, the amount of people that you could know that you can actually trust. It's actually around 120. Um, obviously, you can't really govern down to that level, at least not in the near term. But the point being is trust is really gotten down at the local level. So as this trust uh, breaks down on the central and federal level, you're going to see a lot of local communities picking up the pace. Mm. So you're going to be seeing a lot more of that, and hopefully. They, they go that direction because the other one is conflict. It's increased conflict. 
And uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I think we can see very clearly, unfortunately, what could happen if there was large scale conflict in a country like the United States or Europe or UK or uh, any other part of the world. It, it, it's not pretty. And we should avoid it all point. And this is our least valve. I mean, if we're lucky, we'll all be wiped off the face of the earth with the coronavirus by then. But uh, I digress. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I laughed earlier when you were talking about the uh, the distrust that was in these uh, these three letter agencies. And um, it's it's funny because back in in 2016, I think it was like two or three days after the election. I actually so I'm still an associate editor over at the Libertarian Republic, and, uh, and I wrote an article, and it was um, you know the reason like here's the reason why Trump is so scary. And it was literally exactly what you just said. Like, maybe, just maybe, we've ceded far too much power to this overarching federal government that now has its fingers quite literally in everything. And, you know, I, I was using this um, this example when I was talking to a friend of mine because they were actually, you know, pretty on board with the idea of, like, a national popular vote kind of dictating for the entire the entire nation. And I was like, you know, let me ask you this. Do you, do you think that somebody in Anchorage, Alaska has the the same understanding and same beliefs that somebody in Orlando, Florida does? Or, or to the contrary, does somebody in San Diego, California live the same way that someone in, in Portland, Maine lives? And to think that we were, go that, that the idea of maybe, you know, having this popular vote decide all is the answer, I, I think is, is insane. Because that's just going to lead to, as you said, more division. It's going to lead to more conflict because now when you have the 51% over the 49%, the 49% are likely going to feel resentful. And I mean, they can be resentful in one of two ways, either a, they'll be resentful in a you know political sense or B in a violence sense. And, and that's that I think we get, we're getting to a point where people are getting tired of a, the, the option a, the political means not accomplishing what they want to accomplish and I, I'm scared to think, you know, we, there was the whole push for the, the, the boogaloo, if you will, that was in, in Virginia there with the um, this, this state deciding whether or not to uh, confiscate these uh, uh, assault, air quotes, assault style weapons. Um, but there was a real belief that we might have something happen in, in terms of violence in response to a, a, a complete switch in policy. And that was with the Democrats taking control of the Virginia Senate back in uh, 2018. Um, so, so with that being said, I, I completely get where you're coming from. And I, I, I definitely hope that people will kind of get more into this mindset of, of, you know, governing locally. And again, going like kind of the idea of federalism, right? Um, you know, I've had, uh, lots of representatives from the, the Federalist Party of America here on my show. And mostly because I think that might be, maybe the more um what the, the more pragmatic approach to actually solving some of our issues is, is at the very least getting back to this idea of federalism what are your thoughts on that joe uh federalism um i well i mean it, it's it's the cornerstone of what i believe in i believe that obviously there's a marginal utility to everything but centralization i think we could gain a lot from from it if we have a lot more of it right now because of uh, there's there's no experimentation happening right now. And a lot of the polarization comes from the fact that everyone has to obey the same set of rules over a group of people that aren't going to really share the same set of values. And that's not going to go over too hot. If, you're, if you have a, a certain group of people that believe in one policy uh, and they impose that upon another, they're going to get pissed off. And obviously the libertarian solution is like, well, just on, on all levels, we'll just have a framework that just allows everyone to do whatever they want. 
but that really doesn't take into account history. People want a government that, you know, formulates their values, just descriptively. I'm not talking about what, you know, what government should be, but the likelihood that they're going to have a government that just no hold bar, laissez-faire socially and economically is going to happen is very, very low. So the best that you can do is to have a local government so that that if you are going to have people, they're going to have laws that extend beyond strict adherence to property rights or, or, or strict civil laws. At the very least, the people that are in it are opting into it. They aren't, they aren't uh, imposed upon. So that means more decentralization. So I would say go further than traditional federalism because federalism was created at a time when populations were much lower, for mm, instance. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So, so I would say get down to the city level, the, the municipal level, uh, a, a smaller still, maybe even to the point of down to the individual. But I think for now, a really solid practical strategy is to at least get to the point where your, your main politics are with your neighbors. Your main politics are the people who share the roads and the infrastructure that you do, not with people that you've never met or plan to meet, nor will have share any values with. Yep. I'm right there with you, man. Awesome. Well, listen, Joe, uh, what I want to do is is give you the, the floor. Um, so obviously you're doing a lot of great work over at Startup Society's Foundation. And as a CEO, you have a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff on your plate there. So uh, I want folks to, to at least stay up to date with what's happening. So where can go, folks go ahead, number one, and follow um, the Startup Society's Foundation, but also where can folks stay up to date with all that's going on with you? So yeah, just go to Startup Society.com, look at our Facebook and Twitter and Telegram group, um, and uh, check out the stuff that we're doing at the Institute for Competitive Governance, which is our research arm, if you're more academically inclined, where we have our peer-reviewed work, our journals. Um, and if you're interested in actually making this happen, uh, we published our book, like I said, a, a while back, and uh, it has how-to materials. So you as an individual with a computer, if you have a desire to do it, this book brings you to the step of, I have an idea, have a team, get initial funding, finding local partners, and actually building these things. Whether you want to do just like a small little eco-village or something like that or some community thing, or if you actually want to make a large-scale experiment, we break it down into small steps so you can focus your energies on that rather than how angry and how frustrated and frankly, or likely, how scared you are about the results of the well, Joe, uh, I mean, it, it, there's always a reason my guests come on when they do. And I think, uh, you know, you're speaking exactly to what people are feeling right now when they're looking at what might happen as, uh, as the election in 2020 approaches. So with that being said, Joe, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us here on The Brian Nichols Show. And uh, you're always more than welcome to, uh, to come back on and talk about all the great things you're doing over there. And, and again, thank you so much for all your time today. Of course. Well, thank you, Brian. I really had fun. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe. Want to help us reach more people? Give the show a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Find us at briannicholsshow.com and download the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on social media at bnicholsliberty and consider donating to the show at briannicholsshow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Laura Stanley, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DaCosta, and the We Are Libertarians Network. Trust the experts. We're all in this together. If it saves one life. Raise your hand if you heard any of those tiresome phrases over the past year and a half. I know my hand is currently raised. Millions of people across dozens of industries were labeled 
unessential and forced to lock down with livelihoods and futures crushed in an instant. And as government has continued to expand its power and leverage fear to turn neighbor against neighbor, a group of filmmakers have taken a stand and are determined to help set the record straight on the importance of following the actual science of the pandemic. Follow the science on lockdowns and liberty from the Sound Mind Creative Group is a brand new docuseries highlighting the stories of those negatively impacted over the past year and a half by ineffective government policies enacted in the name of following the science. With noted experts like Nick Hudson from Panda, the Pandemic Data and Analytics Organization, healthcare policy advisors like Scott Atlas, and telling the stories of business owners, families, and just your average everyday person harmed by these government mandates. Follow the science on Lockdowns and Liberty is giving us a chance to make sure the true stories of the pandemic are told. So please help us at The Brian Nichols Show in supporting the Sound Mind Creative Group. With noted figures in the Liberty Movement like Dr. Tom Woods donating thousands of their own dollars to this project, you know just how important this project is. So head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash follow the science to donate and catch their brand new trailer to the docuseries one more time. That's briannicholsshow.com forward slash follow the science.